1: There's a story written in the Reader's Digest. How many of you are familiar with Reader's Digest? A few of you. About a group of kids that brought their teacher gifts at the end of the school year. We're nearing the end of the school year, and uh, a lot of teachers do get gifts at the end of the school year. This story in the Reader's Digest goes like this. On the last day of school, children were bringing their gifts to the teacher, a florist's son, brought the teacher a beautiful bouquet of flowers. A candy store owner's son brought the teacher a pretty box of candy. The liquor store owner's son brought a big, heavy box. The teacher lifted it up and noticed that it was leaking a little bit. She touched a drop of the liquid with her finger and tasted it. And she asked the little boy, is it wine? No, said the little boy. So she tasted another drop champagne? No, said the little boy, it's a puppy. <laughs> <clears throat> now you can take that however you want to. I don't know if the puppy was alive or dead. The story doesn't tell. It could be tinkle matter or something else. <laughs> gifts are fun to receive, aren't they? You like getting gifts? Even if your love language is not gifts, We all love to get a gift from time to time, especially if it's something we really want. And uh, we love to get gifts, even on days that aren't special days, like birthdays or Christmases and so on and so forth. It's fun to receive gifts, but sometimes it's difficult to receive gifts, isn't it? I love to receive gifts. And when we have designated times for gifts, it's kind of an expectation that that's what's going to happen. But if somebody were to give you something out of the goodness of their hearts when you didn't expect it, sometimes it's hard to receive that gift. Well, what did I do to, what did I do to earn this? Why would you give me a gift for no reason? So it's hard, right? Right? I think of the story of Jesus with his disciples the night before he is arrested. And he's gathered around this table in the upper room. They're all reclined at the table. And they didn't have chairs or stools like we did. They had tables that, if you remember me telling you this, that were about a foot off the floor. And what they would do was recline on pillows next to the table. So Imagine, I don't know if the camera can get this, and I'm not as nimble and limber as I used to be, but watch, this is how, so figure the table's right here, it's off the floor. You would recline on your elbow at a table with your feet behind you, and the table would be here, okay? So now, when you get this picture of the Last Supper, You get this picture of them reclining. When it says Jesus leaned on the chest or the breast of the disciple next to him to talk, it means he turned this way and leaned into the guy behind him, okay? So do you catch the picture of what I'm going for here? So now Jesus gets up from the table, and what does he do? It says that night he gets up, he goes to the door of the upper room where there would have been a basin and a towel, and the basin would have had a pitcher of water next to it, and you'd pour that pitcher of water in there. And the servant of the home, the lowest servant usually, would come and they would wash the feet of the disciple not the disciples, but of the people coming into the house before they stepped in. Well, nobody was there that day to do that. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he begins to wash his disciples' feet. It says he took off his outer robe, which would have been a long robe that was down to the feet and would would have been bedded down with at night as a blanket. So he took off that outer robe. He would have had a a, a tunic on that would have been about mid-thigh. So he was in his undergarments. says he grabbed the towel, wrapped it around his waist, and he began to kneel next to his disciples' feet who were reclined at the table. And he began to take that water in his hands and wash the disciples' feet and dry their feet with a towel he had girded himself with. It says in the story in John chapter 13, he comes to one of his disciples, one of the disciples named Peter, who was often quoted and mentioned, the one on whom Jesus said God would build his church. And He kneels behind him, and I want you to get this picture, because the reason I laid down here, I want you to get this picture of what's going on here, because I'm a very visual person. I I like to see things in my mind's eye. And so he starts to wash Peter's feet, and it's almost as if he pulls his feet away from Jesus. No, 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 Jesus, you can't do that. You can't do that. I can't let you wash my feet. See, this is a very same guy who proclaimed that Jesus was the son of the living God. So Peter knows that not only is he the Messiah, he is the son of the living God. And so Peter's got this conflict going on internally inside of him. This is the embodiment of God. He is perfect in every way, and I know that I'm not. I should be washing his feet, not the other way around. And there's this stark contrast that's going on there because none of them thought that night to get up and do that task. And Jesus is offering this gift by washing their feet. And he says to Peter, listen, unless you let me do this, you can have no part of me. And Peter as he often does. Well, then wash my whole body, Lord. No, 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 no. You've had a bath, but your feet are dirty. All you need is to to have your feet washed. And he gets done that night. And he said, what you've seen me do, do unto each other. You need to serve one another this way. See, Peter had a hard time receiving a gift. And dare I say, we in the 21st century American church oftentimes have a hard time receiving the gifts that God gives. I see so many people as a pastor who who feel like they have to earn their keep of salvation. That they have to do something to earn it. I'm telling you, that is a lie and a deception from the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. If he can get you busy doing instead of being, then he's won a battle over your soul. See, this is what Peter also, and I've mentioned this story several times. Jesus is walking on the water, he calls Peter out to him on the waves. And you see Peter walking on the water too as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. But then he starts to realize, how am I doing this? Now it never says that, but he got his eyes off Jesus and started to see the wind and waves and kind of got freaked out a little bit. And he got his focus on how am I doing this versus who is doing this through me? Church, I'm telling you, we overcomplicate things in life when we think there's more we have to add to what God is doing instead of just be- being obedient to what God wants to do through us. Now, we come to this story in Scripture, which should be a part of, if you've been reading through the Bible with us this year, you, have, you may have read this one already, 2 Kings chapter 5. It's this famous story of a character by the name of Naaman. And the uh, prophet in the, the uh, Holy Land at the time is Elisha, not Elijah. Those often get confused. Elisha was a student and assistant to Elijah, but Elisha received a double portion of the anointing and blessing from Elijah that God had placed on him. And he also became not only a prophet, but a miracle worker for God. And so let me pick up this story. It talks about gifts, but it also talks about healing and peace. And let's try to make some sense of it this morning. If you will, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and it goes like this. The king of Aram had a great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior... He suffered from leprosy. Arameans is what this group of people are. What are the Arameans or who are the Arameans? They ruled over what would be modern day Syria today. If you look on a map, just kind of northeast of where Israel is, over to the right, you'll see the Syrian um, country. This would have been the region of Damascus during Elisha's time. And uh, it was a fairly powerful uh, country. They would eventually succumb to the Assyrians who would take them over and would become a part of the Assyrian Empire before the destruction of the Northern Kingdom. And Naaman was one of the top generals or top military leaders under the king of that region and that country, okay? And at this time, the Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel. So these guys were constantly trying to find their way in. These pagan nations that surrounded Israel at the time continually tried to attack and so they did they did it successfully many times in certain areas and cities in that kingdom and so they had raided and invaded the land of Israel among their captives was this young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid one day the girl said to her mistress I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria he would heal him of his leprosy now what is leprosy Well, in that day and age, if you had any skin disorder, okay, it would have been labeled under this blanket statement of leprosy. We don't know if he had the leprosy type that killed the nerve endings and where body parts started falling off he may have had something as simple as just uh, eczema or something like that. That could have been categorized under that. But in the Aramean countries, you could still function within, within society. It was in Israel where you would have been an outcast and put in leper colonies and those kind of things because you would have been considered unclean. So the king at the time uh, loved Naaman, really appreciated who he was. And the interesting part of this is this slave girl who was caught as a Jewish young girl in this raid from the Arameans, was taken back and held as a servant, and this servant girl says, "Hey, I know somebody that could probably fix this problem back in Samaria." So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said, "Well, go visit the prophet," said King the king of Aram. I'll send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. That's a lot. I'm just telling you. That was only a minuscule amount to the king of Aram, but this is a gift taken to the king of Israel in hopes that they could do something about the skin disorder for Naaman. And so... The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Well, so Naaman tracks all the way to Israel in Samaria. It's probably a several day journey on foot. And he presents this letter in the presence of the king of Israel, Jehoram, is his name, and I'm probably horribly butchering and and mispronouncing that, but he is the son of Ahab. Do you remember King Ahab, right? King Ahab married Jezebel, right? They worship the gods of Baal and Asherah, and so now he's the son it says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can, I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. Oh, it's fun to be paranoid, isn't it? <laughs> you ever been paranoid before? Right? So, Keep in mind, the Arameans kept raiding the land of Israel, and now one of the king's official officers goes to the king of Israel wanting a favor. Okay, are you tricking me? What is this? You're raiding my cities and my country, and now you want me to do something for you? Put yourself in his place. But Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, and he sent him this message. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. Now that, <laughs> that's a loaded statement, to say the least, because Jehoram and most of the other kings of the northern kingdom basically rejected the prophets of God. And Elisha says, send him to me, stupid. I mean, I'm just reading between the lines. He's like, yeah, remind him there's somebody that's still here that can fix his problem. You can't do it, wimp. I mean, that's pretty much what he's saying. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Well, Naaman became pretty angry about this and stalked away. Well, I thought he would certainly come out and meet me. I mean, to come all the way. Do you know how many days it took me to get here? Do you know who I am? And you send a messenger, a servant out to greet me and you yourself won't come out and talk to me and to add insult to injury, you want me to go wash in your dirty river, the Jordan. It's like a sewer. You want me to wash in there? There are rivers where I come from that are beautiful and pristine. Would I not be better to wash in them if that's all it took? Okay, sorry, I just jumped off script. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and heal me. Oh, and you're healed. That's what he was wanting. Some incantation and a wave of a magic wand. And we kind of chuckle at that, but that's what we want God to do in our situations, don't we? We want to see a tangible expression of somebody doing something to bring something about. Do you know when you read the Gospels, Jesus didn't heal people the same way every time? Sometimes he spit and made mud pies and rubbed it in people's eyes. That rhymed. (laughs) Stick around, there's more. He would tell people to get up off their mats and walk. Sometimes he he would heal people from a distance. He could raise the dead from a distance. Sometimes he did other things. I mean, there was no, you couldn't nail down exactly how he was going to do something. But we like to put God in a box today and say, well, God only moves this way or does this thing in this time. And thus, we strip God, not only of his majesty and sovereignty when we do that, we basically say, God, you have to work on our term. Now, we, wouldn't, we would never say that, but in our actions and in our words, we roundabout say, God, you have to do it this way or I won't believe. You see, church, I believe when God pours out his spirit in a way that is a tangible expression of his presence, it will not look like this. I think you'll see bodies healed instantaneously, if you haven't already. You'll see some people experiencing this overwhelming surge of fire through the Holy Spirit that causes such an overwhelming response in them that all they could do is lay flat and prostrate before the Lord. I hate that word because I get prostate and prostrate mixed up a lot. And so I have to conscientiously think through that. He laid prostate before the Lord. Did I say that? No, prostrate. Right. All right. All right. Let me get back to the scripture. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana and the Parfar, Farpar, better than, let's see. What's the problem down here? Yes? Sorry. Just kidding. Uh, Aren't they better than any of the rivers in Israel? Why shouldn't I go wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and he went away in rage. Look that word up. Actually, I'll talk about it in just a minute. Rage is a very intense word. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? If he told you to hop on one foot for 10 seconds, leap in the air, fart, and then roll over, wouldn't you have done that? That's crass, Brandon. Read the Bible. It's pretty crass and offensive, all right? You think I'm offensive. Read it. There's some crazy stuff in there. But if, the, if he had told you to do something so outlandish and ridiculous, wouldn't you have done it? That's what they're asking him. So you should certainly obey when he says, simply go wash and be cured. Oh, that'll preach, won't it? See, a lot of times, you're, all right, God, if you really want me to do X, Y, or Z, then, then I've got to go on this long pilgrimage and journey, and it's got to be like this and this and this. No, just, just follow me. That's pretty much it. Just do what I tell you. you. You've got my word. I mean, I've given you a revelation to myself in the, in the embodiment of Christ Jesus. You have his story and his example to follow. It's, it's not complicated. But, but shouldn't it be, I, I want to be saved, and, and, and I, I have a lot of sin in my life, and, and surely it's got to be more than just believing and walking in faith. Actually, no, that's it. Well, Surely there's got to be something more. I, no, 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 it's not about you. It never has been and never will be. The reality is it's always been about him. And until you fall on your face before him in complete surrender, there's nothing else that matters. But I've done so many bad things, Brandon. I've done so many of this, so much of that. Surely I've got to pay more of a penance. It doesn't matter how many Hail Marys or Our Fathers you say. All that matters is what Christ did on the cross for you. And you saying, all right, I surrender. I surrender. That's it, and you give that, your life, over to him. Now, faith always precedes works, not the other way around. If you are a person of faith, then your life will evidence that faith by how you live your life. See, the natural production of a person who walks in faith, who is fully surrendered to God, is fruit from the Holy Spirit. And that fruit is a practical production of the good works of your life. So I want you not to get this mixed up. It's not what you do that saves you, it's who saves you that brings you into the kingdom of God. What you do is an outflow of that relationship you have with him and not something you must manufacture in and of your own will or accord, but through the power of the Holy Spirit in you. See, the problem is we have too many people in the church thinking that they have to manufacture something for God for for him to be pleased with them. When you've surrendered your life to Christ, There's no more pleasing than that to him. You believe in my son. You've you've willingly welcomed him into your life, and you, you believe in him, and you confess him with your mouth. I can't be more pleased with you. So now live for me instead of for yourself. I haven't even gotten to my point yet. Let me continue. Sorry. So, Naaman went down to the Jordan, I'm sorry, there it is, Jordan River dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. So imagine this, he goes down to the Jordan River, he steps into the water and he kind of goes down and comes back up. This is a good thigh workout. Down and back up. And he does that seven times. And I can imagine in his own mind, he's like, all right, whatever. I mean, I'm just doing this to appease my my other officers that are under my command. Yeah, we'll see. And he comes back up the seventh time. And it's almost like he shed his old skin. And he looks, and there are no blemishes. There are no warts or moles. And his skin isn't wrinkled or worn or weathered from sun or battle. My guess is even the scars from battle are gone because it says his skin became as vibrant as a young child's skin and he was healed. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God and they stood before him and Naaman said, now I know there is no God in the world except Israel. So please accept my gift for your, uh, for your, from your servant, accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I'm not going to accept gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. And then Naaman said, all right, but please allow me to load two, two of my mules down with earth from this place and I can take it back home with me. From now on, I will never offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except Yahweh. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into his temple, or the temple of the God, Ramon, to worship there, and he leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow to. And Elisha says, go in peace. So Naaman started home. Key point this morning is this. Peace cannot be bought, but rather is freely given to those who trust in God. You can't buy peace. You can't. You can't buy healing peace. You can't buy any kind of peace. But in order for peace to have its healing work in our life, It has to work for us like it did for Naaman. There have to be certain things that need to be understood. The first thing is this. Healing peace can only come when a person is willing to move from where they are to where God is. We we are a prideful people, even in our churches in America, because we want God to do for us things that we want him to do for us in our way rather than in his. So God says, listen, this isn't the way I work. I love you. I make a ton of concessions. I've been over backwards for you. But there are some things that I won't do. You have to do things my way, not the other way around. You've heard me say this several times before. It's like we go before God and we say, God, bless this and bless that. Bless what I put my hands to and bless this thing that I'm doing and bless that thing that I'm doing. And God says, I love you, but I want you to join me in my work and you will be blessed when you join me. It doesn't mean that God won't come and meet you. Here's the thing. How, how much closer can God get to you than stepping from eternity and into time and dying on a cross for you? He's, he's made a million steps in your direction. You just had to make one. But we still want him to make that last step. Ugh, like kids. I mean, I have my kids take out the garbage. Don't run me to take do my chore I hate it when you do that what if I don't remind you you don't do it now that's not my kids here but but you know that's just how life is but isn't that how we do God it's so hard isn't it funny how we complain to God about how hard life is when God has had to contend with humanity for ever? I mean, when we put a different perspective on things and look from God's, as best we can, we can't see perfectly from God's perspective, but when we stand in God's shoes as best we can and look from his perspective... It's humbling for me. I don't know about for you, but it's humbling for me and say, when I start to complain, when I start to get upset, when I start to any number of things against my belief or thoughts in God, well, God, why aren't you, why didn't you fix this? Why aren't you doing that? And He's like, dude, what more do you want me to do? Other than putting a gun to your head and forcing you, which I'm not gonna do because that's contrary to who I am. I can't make people, or even you, do anything. Well, if God really was all-loving and all-powerful, then he would fill in the blank, right? You see, we miss the big point of salvation when we think that God can do more than he's already done. This is why Jesus, and you hear me quote this, you probably get sick of me quoting this, but John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I've contended, that that was the one verse that I had to contend with during a crisis of faith I was having in college of, is Jesus truly the only way or are there multiple ways to him? And I had to square myself with that verse from Jesus' lips. He either is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to God except through him, or I need to walk away from my faith altogether. Because that's either a true statement or a false statement. If it's a false statement, then I can't be a pastor. I can't go to church. I can't be a Christian. Well, that's so exclusive. We love inclusivity, right? But truth by its very nature is exclusive. It just is. Truth can't be anything other than what it is. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you think the almighty, all-powerful God would have made multiple ways if he could have? This would be yes. Yes! Because his very nature is love. And I would think as a loving parent, I would want to do whatever I could to save my kids too. But there are some things I couldn't do and wouldn't do because it would go contrary to my very nature. But then now scale that up to perfection in a God who is all loving and all perfect and all knowing and all of those things. This is the only way. Do you not think God calculated in his mind, well, let, you know, I can't, I'm not going to do that. I can't, no, this, this wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. This, okay, this is the only way. We, we get a glimpse into the heart of God when Jesus is praying in the garden, and it says, like, he was sweating blood. You remember that? Do you remember the prayer he prays in the garden? Oh, Father, please. Let this cup of judgment pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. So what was God's will? The crucifixion, the cross. And Jesus stepped, stood up with resolve, knowing there was no other way. That cup had to come on him in order for God's good will to be done to bring salvation to the world. That's just the nature of who God is and what God does. So yes, I'm one of those horrible pastors that believes there's absolute truth in a God who is, yes, exclusive because he necessarily has to be because he is truth, and truth by its very nature is exclusive. Secondly, healing peace cannot come to a person whose pride rules them. You will never have peace if pride rules your life. Never. You can take that to the bank. Trust me, I know. When you are unwilling to admit when you're wrong, own up to your mistakes or anything else, when you are not willing to confess your sins, but instead say it was somebody else's fault as to the reason. I see this in marriages a lot. Well, it's their fault. It's, and listen. Listen. I get it. There are some tragic situations and marriages and relationships that are horrible and harmful. There's no question about it. But none of us can stand before God and say, "Hey, I'm perfect." Right? And instead, we like to cast the blame. See, there's nothing new under the sun. In the garden, it started when sin entered the world. Pride gained hold of Adam and Eve. And what did they start to do when God said, hey, what happened? They said, I was wrong. I ate of the fruit. It's all my fault. (laughs) Is that what they said? They owned up and they said, please forgive me. I, I did what I shouldn't have done. No, no. Adam, what happened? That woman! She's the one who did it. And you were stupid enough to eat it? You know, God doesn't say that, but it's implied. All right? And then the woman, he looks at her and he's like, seriously? Well, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. (laughs) We live in a culture where it's nobody's fault. And ladies and gentlemen, do you know why our culture is in as much mess as it is? Because nobody's willing to take ownership of their own mess and say, all right, God, there are certain things that I didn't do to be in this mess, but I also know I'm not perfect and I'm a contributor to my own messes because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard, so I'm in that boat too. So God, I can't take ownership for other people's messes, but I can take ownership for mine, so God... Here's my mess. Forgive me of my sin. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David's prayer in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit with me. I repent. I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done the things that I've done that I know I shouldn't do. And the things I know I should do that I haven't done, please forgive me of those things as well. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, set me on a path of righteousness, and help me to run this race with endurance. There's so many people sitting on the sidelines of life saying, Well, it's not my fault. And we like to sit over here and say, It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. A lot of things are not your fault. You're correct. But how further down this road do you get if you sit on the sidelines bickering and complaining that it's not your fault? You get nowhere. As a matter of fact, if you're getting nowhere, then what do you think is going to happen to your life? You see, in, in several weeks, we're going to be looking at Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is an amazing book of depression. <laughs> Not kidding. That'll suck the life right out of you. Hey, money and fame, it's in vain. Youth. It's wasted. Having a lot of women in your life? Hubba, bubba. Nah. All the pleasures of life, all the food you can eat, guess what? It's all in vain. In the very last verse of the last chapter in Ecclesiastes, he comes down and says, here's the deal. Fear God and obey his commands. (laughs) Fear God and obey his commands. See, we try to pursue all of these things, this side of heaven, that end up empty in the end. The E! True Hollywood stories of life. Only to come to the realization that at the end of life, if we live to be old enough to look back over the decades, we realize, oh, shoot, if I could do it differently, I would. See, there's something about age and time that often brings humility when we look back over the course of our lives. Not all the time. I met some stubborn old people too. I'm afraid that I'm becoming a stubborn old person, so I have to have perspective at times. The reality is, unless we are able to see with the perspective that God can only give and allow the pride to disseminate and get out of our lives, then we won't experience the freedom that God gives through the peace of God. I love this. Um, Think of what Naaman did. My river's better than yours. How many times do you compare yourself to somebody else around you? or to those on TV, or in the ads, or in the newspapers? How many times have you ever compared yourself, the way you look, the way you act, what you have, what you don't? How many times have you ever compared yourself to somebody else? Because guess what? There's always going to be somebody probably better than we are at something else. See, this is a tool of the enemy. When he can get your eyes off Christ who is incomparable onto people who you can compare yourself to, only to be left feeling empty. My rivers are better. You didn't even come out to see me. You know how many times I hear that as a pastor? Sorry, I digress. Well, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't. No, no, no. Do you want to be healed or not? Guess what? Brandon can't heal you. Brandon is not your savior. Never was, never will be, and I will never claim to be. And if you ever hear me say that, then fire me. Because I'm going to cause more damage than good. I am not the savior of mankind. No pastor on the face of God's green earth is. There is only one Savior, and those pastors that aren't pointing people to him need to get out of the way because they're false prophets. The reality is there is a Savior, and it requires humility to enter into his presence. Naaman had to realize that the hard way, and at least he had enough humility in the midst of his stubbornness to find, I'll go do what he told me to do. And when he does, even that small amount of faith and willingness to obey was enough to bring him healing and peace. Finally, healing peace can only be received in humility through obedience. In humility through obedience. So Naaman goes straight back to Elisha, but this time he's not only different physically, he's different spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. See, that's what happens. When you come to God with one problem, he usually blesses you with a myriad of other issues to deal with other problems you never came to him with. Do you see what I'm saying? God, I've got this one thing going on in my life. I'm struggling with it. I'm really hurting over it. But We don't bring these other issues up. And and when we willingly humble ourselves in obedience to what he says, okay, well, here's what I want you to do. Okay? And when we hear that, we feel that, we sense that, we know we need to do that, and we are are obedient to that, we walk away and we realize, oh, my goodness. Not only has my burden been lifted and this thing been dealt with and I feel a ton of peace, but I didn't realize that this has been affected and that's been affected. Oh, my goodness, how blessed am I? See, God loves to bless us when we're willing to humble ourselves. God can't bless a prideful person because that prideful person would never receive a blessing. But the humble person says, all right, here I am, Lord. (laughs) I can't do this, but I know you can. I'll dip in whatever dirty river you want me to, figuratively speaking. The author of one of the books of the Old Testament says, it's interesting that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We think the God of all creation, surely it would be more complicated. Remember what I said earlier? I'd love this. The religious leaders come to Jesus and one of the religious leaders says, all right, what's what's the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments... What's the greatest? Jesus says, actually, well, there's two, but they're very, they're closely tied. And and they're this love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. But see, the second's like it love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the law and the prophets hang on, on these two. It can't be that simple. But see. They're sitting there, the religious leaders, they've memorized the Old Testament, okay? And so they're going, they're going to, okay, wait, okay, look, well, yeah, okay, mm, yep, oh, ooh, oh. And so they're having these moments of realization. They're trying to trick Jesus, but he's telling them simple truths of his word and simple words, and they're, but you don't have a doctorate. You don't have a master of divinity. You're a carpenter. An itinerant preacher, so to speak. (laughs) I love this about God. In order to raise us up to his level, he always comes down to ours. In order for us to see who he truly is, He pulls the curtain back. Do you know when Jesus died, breathed his last breath, and said, it is finished? What happened in the temple? The veil veil that separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence would come down and rest over the Ark of the Covenant was torn into that holy place that only the high priest could go into once a year. And he had to be completely set apart for that job. Would wear bells around his ankles And have a rope tied around the other so that he kept moving around. But if the bell stopped for any length of time, they knew, oh, he probably did something he shouldn't have done. And died in the presence of God. And Jesus dies on the cross and the veil is torn in two. And God says, okay, it's finished. That old covenant has been fulfilled through Jesus So now I've I've, I've taken all the options, no more animal sacrifice, um, no more diet, none of that stuff. Here's the truth of the matter. What you guys missed in the law is now fulfilled through my son Jesus because you couldn't do it. And so here's what I want you to do. Believe in my son Jesus Christ and you can be set free from sin and death. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you could be saved. But that's too simple, right? Surely I've got to pay for it somehow. If not by money, then I've got to pay for it with a lifelong sacrifice. It's got to be a grueling problem. And I see people. This is where the masochistic perspective of worship comes into play in the Catholic tradition. There were these monks that were masochistic monks. And they would take a flagellum and they would beat themselves on the back with it. Because they had to pay for their sins. No, Jesus did that. He's got the wounds to prove it. You don't need to beat yourself up. You need to surrender your life to him. Your life then could become, as Paul says, a living sacrifice, which is your holy and acceptable worship of him. As our worship team comes forward today in this story of Naaman, are you trying too hard? Are you trying too hard to earn something that cannot be earned or bought, but is freely given and has to be freely received? Are you struggling with true peace that passes understanding? Are you? Are you struggling with peace in your earthly relationships? God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation, but the ministry of reconciliation cannot be done pridefully. It's not going and lording over others, saying, I've got something you don't have, and unless you become like me, you're going to hell, which is a lot of times what people see of the church. But when we go as light and salt into the world, as we give the simple message of the gospel, I hear so many people say, Well, I don't know enough of the Bible to be a witness for God or to share. Oh, come on, that's an excuse. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the testimony of a changed life in your very person. Right. You are the living, breathing result of the gospel of Christ, which is alive and well and beating in your own heart. I hear a lot of times, I've got I to take you to meet my pastor. I gotta, no, 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 you got to take people to meet your Lord. Because <laughs> guess what? This guy messes up. Ask my kids, they'll tell you. Oh, and they do. And I'm okay with it, because there's transparency here. You don't need to be, again, don't take people to meet your pastor who has uh, the degrees and and knows the Bible. Take them to your Lord, who is the living word. All right, I've preached enough. So, Here's what I want you to do, and not that I want you to do this. The Lord has his his arms open to you, and he's saying this morning, listen, you've struggled to find peace, some of you. You've carried burdens and baggage around for so long. You can't do that anymore. Well, I mean, I guess you can if you want to live a miserable life, but if you want to be set free, then it's only through Christ that you can be set free, and if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. Again, I see so many people that claim to have a belief in Christ and they are buckled over with the burdens and the cares of this world when we should be casting our cares on him because he cares for us. Instead, we're like, oh, I've got to do And we think we've got this martyr complex. Oh, if I, and we look holy. No, no, no. The holiest person is the one who has completely surrendered to Christ and the joy of the Lord is upon them. And this joy is not an arrogant joy that says, ha ha ha, it's a joy that just exudes this vibrance of life that has this attractive quality to the world. I pray that that is what you desire today. And if you do, and you don't know how to receive that, we have altars up here and we have a non-social distancing altar over here that if you want to be prayed with by somebody, when you come to my right, your left, or if you're at home and you want to pray there, we could send somebody to your home this week if you want. You just need to give us a call. But if you want somebody to pray with you here in this facility, you're indicating to somebody, hey, please come pray with me. And we have prayer warriors in this facility that are on notice and they see you come and they come and pray. If you want to pray alone, You can come to my left, your right, and nobody will bother you over here. You can kneel in your pews. They're really tight together. Uh, Good luck getting back up after you kneel down there. Uh, You can kneel across the front of the stage, wherever. But here's the thing come and release those burdens, give them away. Don't let your pride rule you anymore. Heavenly Father, in this place and in the homes of those watching, I pray your holy presence would be there. Your Holy Spirit would not only be a sweet aroma in the space in which they occupy, but God would be a sweet release to peace. Help us to learn what freedom truly is through your son, Jesus Christ, as we cast everything upon you. Remind us, God, of the words of Christ, that we should come before you. If we want rest, we can find it in you. Forgive us of our sins this morning. We repent as a church for the sins of the past in this congregation. This church has been here for over 100 years, Father, or in existence, at least in some form or fashion. And we know that this body of Christ hasn't always done it perfectly. And so, God, I ask over the course of the century previous to us for this body of Christ specifically, at least in this place, that God you would release us from the burdens of our past where we've not lived perfectly for you and remind us that you extend grace from the throne room of grace to us as we surrender to you and as we've prayed for this congregation for the individuals here we pray for our state our nation everything seems to be falling apart. But God, we know you are the God of the impossible. That's when you do your best work. So let the light begin to ripple out from North Main Street Church of God because of the people who have surrendered to your glorious ways and will. And let that ripple effect of light begin to change our community, our state, and our world, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.